Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. very simple molecule. It's uh, you know two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. And there's no reason why something so simple and um, you know unremarkable in some ways can end up doing all the things that it does. And if you think about your day to day, it's involved in almost everything you've done. You wake up, you wash, you make a cup of tea, you eat some food, um, you probably drive a car to work. Definitely may help to make the city around you. It flows in all of the channels underneath the city uh, or, or the town or, or countryside, wherever you are. It's helping everything grow around you. I mean, it, it's a layer in our society and in the planet in general. It's shaped us. We've built our entire civilizations around access to this stuff. And the remarkable thing is, I suppose, that we just don't think about it at all, all day long, even though it's the one thing you probably interact with more than anyone you even love. <laughs> that, that, that's the thing you interact with more. How can something so common and familiar be so difficult to describe? So asked science writer Alok Jha in his fascinating new book, The Water Book, The Extraordinary Story of Our Most Ordinary Substance. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight's show is all about water, water and more water. This evening, we're going to journey through the water universe to visit the hydrosphere, the biosphere, the cryosphere and space with science writer Alok Ja. Tonight we're travelling to the mysterious Antarctic, to the great ice fields of the Southern Ocean, to the Moon, Mars and Saturn, to the Himalayas. Yes, all very ambitious. Alec Ja, the science correspondent for ITV News, talks the cultural place of water in history and its unique and magical qualities. I mean, we are water beings. 70% of us is water. So there's, there's obviously a physical connection. Even if you can't put it into words, then you share that connection with somebody else to know that the, 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 the substance is something important. And yeah, uh, as we said earlier as well, water is, is sacred to almost all religions, all religions, in fact. And so those stories we hear about them, the, the importance of it in creation is, is ever-present. And I wouldn't want to diminish that at all. Um, and I think I, I wish, in the fact, that I'd had more room to discuss some of those things because I think some of those visceral experiences, some of those spiritual experiences people have, they may be different to mine, but I feel like those are a common sort of thing in humanity. Um, and we all just describe them in different ways and use different vocabularies. But we all understand what we're all talking about at, at some level. This is a show about exploration and experience, belief and drive, human relationships, water security and the matrix of life. Alok Ja is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster and writer and the science correspondent for ITV News. In 2008, Alok was named European Science Writer of the Year. Well, after nearly 20 years roaming around the world, covering the big stories in science, Alec has turned his focus on the mystery of water, life's most basic substance. And in his extraordinary first book, asks, do we value it? 
In the water book, Alec writes, The human relationship with water is complex, multidimensional and like a fractal, infinitely more intricate the closer you look. Alec begins the water book with some thought-provoking words from British poet Philip Larkin from his iconic poem, Water. If I were to construct a religion, I should make use of water. Well, earlier this week, I had the pleasure of talking with Alec. I asked him, is it fair to describe the water book as a biography of water mixed with a bit of memoir? I think that's very fair, actually. I, I, I resisted calling it a biography because it sort of implied something a bit more comprehensive about what water means to people. But actually, in the end, that's what it ended up being. I, I wanted to call it uh, more of a, um, a history, uh, a cultural history of water, a scientific history of water, and how it's important to us and shapes us, but then also how we shape it and what it means to us. Biography is a, a, a good sort of shorthand way of describing it, I would say. And I suppose when you think about things, water is life. I think you phrase it something as where there is water, there is life. It certainly is a life-giving substance that permeates every aspect of life, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, water is a very simple molecule. It's, uh, you know, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. And there's no reason why something so simple and, um, you know, unremarkable in some ways can end up doing all the things that it does. And if you think about your day-to-day, it's involved in almost everything you've done. You wake up, you wash, you make a cup of tea, you eat some food, um, you probably drive a car to work, you go to work and come back. And every single... uh, Well, there's there's obvious things, of course. You see the water that you wash with and you eat drink, but also it's in your food. um, It's made your food. It's helped to make your car. It's it's definitely helped to make the city around you. It flows in all of the channels underneath the city uh, or, or the town or or countryside, wherever you are. It's helping everything grow around you. I mean, it, it's a layer in our society and in, in the planet in general. It's shaped us. We've built our entire civilizations around access to this stuff. And the remarkable thing is, I suppose, that we just don't think about it at all, all day long, even though it's the one thing you probably interact with more than anyone you even love. <laughs> that, that, that's the thing you interact with more. And one of the interesting things I read in your book on water is that only 1% of the water we have in the world is actually available for human consumption. That's remarkable, isn't it? Human, our animal, or plants, everything. Everything that's living can only use 1% of the world's water because there's 1.5 billion cubic kilometres of water on Earth. It's in all sorts of places from the oceans to the air to the ice caps. And most of it is salty. The oceans are salty. We can't really use that water, so that's unavailable to us. That's 97%. And then there's 3% is fresh water. And two of those percentages are locked up in the ice caps and in glaciers and those sorts of places. So they're not available to us, really. So 1% is left, but that's plenty. We don't need more than that. Now, Felix Franks, the noted chemist, um, he wrote Water, A Matrix of Life, said water is probably the most studied, yet least understood. Do you agree with that? Because one of the things that jumps out from your book is the fact that water is so much a mystery. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, if you think back to the fact that, you know, we, we um, chemistry and physics and biology nowadays, you know, it's very sophisticated, lots of uh, amazing equipment. And, and we understand all sorts of chemicals in all sorts of ways. Chemical engineering plants build our world around us by understanding molecules and how they behave. I mean, we, we can agree on that. Uh, the, the strange thing is that we still don't really properly understand lots of things about water. Um, you know, we understand lots of things about complex polymers and plastics and industrial chemicals we know what they do but water some of the most simple behaviors we don't understand you know for example in your free freezer to tonight you'll probably freeze some water to make ice cubes 
No one really knows how water freezes. We know it does it. We know it does it at about zero degrees. But really, we don't know exactly how, how that happens. We don't know why, for example, well, we have some inklings about why water expands when it freezes. So water, uh, when it freezes, when it becomes ice, it floats. And, you know, the, the strange thing about that is that we see this all the time around us. You, you know, it's in your gin and tonic. If you see icebergs floating on oceans. And we see this as normal because we see it all the time. But if you think about it, solids shouldn't float on their liquids. It just doesn't happen. When something freezes, it you know it condenses and sinks, sinks to the bottom. But we're sort of brainwashed into thinking it's normal. And, and the reason that ice floats is that uh, when it freezes, water's molecules get further apart and they're locked into a slightly more open, slightly further apart pattern than they are in the liquid. And nothing else really does that. That's a bit strange. Now, if you think that's strange, scientists have counted around 60 or so anomalies of water. It's one of the most anomalous, it's one of the most strange liquids we know about. And again, that's kind of a counter to our sort of everyday experiences with water, which is that we just think of it as a boring thing in the background. And like I said earlier about the fact that you've interacted with water in so many ways already today without thinking about it, it's made your world and you don't think about it. The fact that it's so anomalous is another thing you don't think about. You think of it as kind of boring. And so in the book, what I wanted to try and examine was what all these anomalous uh, things are. And to highlight that scientists even find it difficult to study this stuff stuff that we think is really simple, they find it really difficult. And it's only been in the last few decades, I would say, that they've actually had the courage, if you like, to really start to try and understand how the molecule behaves, why it does the strange things it does. And why do we want to know that? Well, it's because of all these anomalies, because of all these strange behaviors that they're in the, in the molecular stage, that it does all the things that uh, we need it to do for life, for the shaping of our planet, all of those sorts of things. Well, maybe, I look. that explains the cultural place of water. If we look at the spiritual aspects or the spiritual components of water, if you go to South and Central America, I'm thinking of Bolivia here, I'm thinking of India, even across the Middle East, water has huge spiritual potency. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. I think that, um, again, in the story I was trying to tell, I was trying to understand what it is that people through history have thought about water. And um, from the beginning of our species, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, if you were to go back to the very first Homo sapiens that ever existed, somewhere near, well, I suppose, where Ethiopia is right now, you wouldn't really be able to communicate with that human. I mean, they'd be the same person in terms of, like, biologically, but you wouldn't be able to communicate with them. You probably wouldn't even, even eat the same food as them. There's definitely no way you'd understand how to behave with them in terms of culture. But you'd understand both of you were water and you would know exactly, you'd do the same things with it. And it's the same right now. If you go to any culture in the world, you know, uh, there's lots of things that are different, but you both know what water is and you do the same things with it. And probably in your culture uh, and in any culture around the world, any culture through history, there have been myths and stories around water. Um, Major religions, all the religions I can think of, have water-based rituals. You either wash yourself, you baptize yourself, or, you know, there are so many things to do with water. In Hinduism, the the last thing you do in life is to be cremated and washed into the sea, into the the river Ganges, for example. And I think that, you know, in Genesis, God moves above the still waters to create the heaven and the earth. You know, there's no story that doesn't involve water in in sort of mythological times. And I think that, in a way, that was all history's um, cultural attempts to elevate this substance. We knew it was important a long time ago. We know it's important. We're, you know, politically, all our 
civilizations and cities are based around sources of water. Um, think about all the empires, the Roman Empire and Greek, they all based their cities around water. Uh, of course they did, uh, for trade purposes, for general you know, agriculture, all those things. We've always known that it's important. And that was our way of uh, appreciating that importance back then. We told stories about water. And then it was only in the 17th, 18th century that we started to apply scientific ideas to water and started to understand it in that way. So these things don't compete for me, the sort of spiritual and mythological understanding of water and the scientific one. They're just different ways of tackling this substance that we know somehow deep down is important and special. And we're going to continue finding new ways, I think, to understand what water is. Do you think we value water today? Because, Alec, when I went through the book, you touch on the idea of the water footprint and you give very interesting stats on water usage. And let me look at this. I think you said that something like Americans use 575 litres of water per day. Europeans manage about 250 litres. Yet in some developing countries, people use it in around 19 litres a day. So clearly there's huge disparities going on here. I think that um, anyone who really thinks about it for five minutes knows we don't appreciate water anywhere near enough. We use um, water not only to eat and drink directly, but that's that's a tiny part of what our water footprint is. I mean, here in the West, all of our objects, all of our, uh, everything from your computer to your hamburger to your house has a water footprint. In other words, water is used in the manufacture of all those things. So uh, it, it, it can be quite surprising that you can use tens of thousands of litres of water to create a kilogram of cotton. If you've got a pair of jeans on, then the water footprint, I, all the manufacturing process, travel, transport, all of that uh, process means that your jeans have used, uh, have used up 10,000 litres of water. And you, know, it's, you, you, you yourself will never see that water, but it's there. And if you think about how many pairs of jeans you've got or how many shoes you've got or how many other clothes you have, they all have water footprints. Because we don't see it, we don't sort of take much attention to it. In parts of the developing world, where people have a lot less things, first of all, that means that their water footprint is is smaller. And proportionally, their water footprint is based around agriculture. So they're growing their own food or they're getting food locally. So that's where most of their water use goes. And also, they're not going to have, a lot of them may not have electronic goods, which will also have huge water footprints. To create a silicon chip, for example, takes several thousand litres of water because you have to wash all the ingredients, keep things clean. This is part of our, our modern world. And we absolutely do not see any of that. And we are seeing already places where water is becoming short. You know, so California, for example, there are huge droughts. Parts of sub-Saharan Africa, we've known for a long time, are getting water stressed. And South Sudan, for example, is often claimed to be the first water war, you know, where the water as a resource gets low in some places, so you start fighting over it. And in a, through history, you've had lots and lots of conflicts over access to water. And often you can argue that many empires have risen and fallen because of their access to water. So to answer your question, in summary, no, we don't appreciate it. And the problems with our access to water are going to increase, not because we're running out of water, no, not at all. That 1% cycles itself round and round and round. But it is going to be in different places. So climate change is the reason that all these problems are happening. It exacerbates water shortages in some places and floods other places. There's still the same amount of water. It's just in the wrong places. So you're going to see lots more problems with access to water. You're going to see lots more migration because people won't be able to live in certain parts of the world and will have to move to others. I mean, yeah, we go where water goes, basically, in the world. And we can't get away from that fact, however technological we become. 
Now, can I ask you a tricky question? Do you think we've a hydrocentric view of the universe? And the reason why I'm asking you that is one of the interesting things that your book does do is explore what the world, non-water world, looks like. And you say that that means you enter a world of speculation and opens some big questions as in what do we mean by life? Can you talk me through all of that? I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, this this is a, a big question and I'll try and sort of hit some of the points on it and hopefully we won't make a mess of it. But so... so um. We, we um, or every life form on Earth uses water from everything from, uh, they all use it in some way. So that means all your biological processes in your cells are mediated through water. Proteins, the DNA, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that you have cell membranes all relies on the fact that water is there. If water wasn't there, none of those things would work properly. And in a way, that's kind of amazing and magical. But that's because our life on Earth has evolved to use this stuff. This stuff is everywhere on Earth. And it's useful. It has all these interesting properties. So therefore, life has evolved to use them all. And all of our life here evolved from a common ancestor about 3.8 billion years ago, somewhere in the ocean. So that's, that's, that's interesting. You think, great. But the question then arises, well, hang on, is, is water the only thing in the entire universe that can do the things that it does? So one of some of the things you, you need to do to uh, make life function are, for example, in, well, water has an interesting molecular shape. Basically, the way it's structured means that there's an electrical charge difference uh, across the molecule. And without getting too complicated, um, that allows water to sort of nudge and push and pull other molecules. It has a sort of electrical attraction to some parts of some molecules and it repulses other bits. You can immediately see there, it can start to nudge things into shape. And so that's how it becomes useful. So that's one function that water has. And and the question is, well, other things could do that too. I mean, ammonia can do that. Um, There's a substance, there's a sort of hydrocarbon called formamide that can do that. And so there was a panel put together of scientists in about 2007. And and it's a subject that's been thought about for a long time. What other molecules, elements, liquids could do the things that life does? And can we find life that exists that, uh, that uses other molecules other than life because we haven't done so on earth so far and so you know that this sort of try the, the idea is that if we're going to look for life out in space which is you know a big concern right now and it's something that nasa and the european space agency and others are actively doing then we have to look for all types of life we can't just look for water-based life otherwise we're restricting our chances until now that's exactly what we've done we've just looked for water-based life elsewhere we've just looked for water elsewhere in fact so that's why you hear all these headlines all the time there's water on the moon of saturn for example enceladus there's water on the moon of jupiter europa you know there's water here there's water there great that's fantastic why do we get excited about water elsewhere well because that's what we know of as one of the basic functions for life then you think well what if there's other liquids that can do these same things and we're just ignoring them because we can't recognize them so there are lots of theoretical ideas around other liquids that could function in the same way. And I have to caution, it is speculative. We've never seen anything uh, or detected anything on Earth or anywhere else for that matter. We've not got no evidence that those liquids that we've just talked about, formamide or ammonia or uh, other things, liquid, sulfuric acid, that's another one that can possibly become a medium for life. We've never seen any life forms living in those things. But it doesn't mean that uh, it can't. And many scientists have come up with quite wild sounding microbes and organisms that may exist in those places. But it's, uh, it's science fantasy at the moment. It's a very well-informed science fantasy. But it's just a caution. It's, it's one of these things which you think, well, if we are looking for life somewhere else, if we are truly to understand why water is important, we have to understand what other things might be out there. And we mustn't close our minds to the fact that other molecules, other types of life might exist.
But it does present some ethical issues there, I look, and there's no real hard evidence. It's also vague in one way, isn't it? It is a bit speculative. And a lot of scientific thinking right at the edge, from biology to particle physics, it's all speculative. People are reaching out into the, into the darkness and they don't really know which direction to go in. And all they've got to guide them is some some ideas from things that have happened before. So they know that, you know, life, for example, requires these these properties to exist as we know it. So what if one of those properties has changed slightly? How does it affect the other ones? And you can do some intelligent thinking around that. Now, every single step you take away from reality, you get more and more options. And so you can imagine, of course, if you take one step away, that's informed speculation. If you're 10 steps away from things you see in real in the real world, then, you know, take take it with a massive pinch of salt. And I think that's how scientists will see it. And, and the, the panels put together by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, well, uh, this is back in 2007, when considering alternatives to water. What they said was, look, we can't dismiss the fact that other liquids and fluids might exist. We certainly can't ignore it. But this is a, uh, an area of active, active debate. Not everyone's going to agree with everything. And the only way we're going to start to shut down some of the more speculative and fantastical things is when we get more evidence. At the moment, we just don't have it. We haven't got evidence from other places of any life, never mind life that has some other function. And, and actively, there's actually a, an active search on this planet going on for life that's different to ours. So I told you, I said that every single life form on Earth now comes from one ancestor 3.8 billion years ago. And it works in almost the same way. We use the same proteins, the same DNA, and we use water, all of us, every single thing. But if they could find on this planet a life form that uses slightly different DNA, or it might use a different liquid a medium other than water, then you know that it's possible. And then it just opens up the possibilities for definite. And we don't, we're, it's no longer in the land of speculation. But many, many, many scientific ideas start with speculation, with imagination, and it's such a creative enterprise on that front. And that's what makes it really exciting, because it doesn't mean that they're right. It just means here's actively interesting ideas that have some basis, in fact, and we're just extending ourselves a little bit. And I think the good scientists would only extend themselves a little bit beyond that. They wouldn't go to the ends of, uh, to the, ends of the universe, otherwise you'd have to sort of take them with a massive, massive pinch of salt. Now, one of the chapters I loved in your book is when you describe the monsoon rains in the Himalayas. I know that some of your family live close to the border in Nepal and having experienced the monsoon rains in Nepal, they're very life-affirming, almost spiritual. And I was quite surprised that you're actually an atheist because how you write about water and how you write about some of its magical properties seems to me hugely spiritual. People have said that to me, actually. And I think that, um, for me, it, it, it's something that I find fascinating. I find nature fascinating. I find the world fascinating. I find uh, how, how these things are related. All very, very interesting. And I've chosen a way of interpreting that and trying to understand it, which is through science and through zoology, biology, all these things. And I think there, there's a lot of poetry, there's a lot of imagination in those places. And many, many better writers and scientists than I have written beautifully, lyrically, about the world around us. And sometimes, you know, just as an experience, even if you're uh, not religious, I think that the, the experience of the world can sometimes be very overwhelming and beautiful. And in a sense, I wanted to capture some of that just just in the moment. Uh, in a, a lot of the uh, things I wrote about where I'm describing a scene in front of me, whether it's in Antarctica or you know, the monsoon rains in India, as you, you mentioned just now, 
just in the moment, you can't help but be overwhelmed or feel particular emotions that, if you're just honest about them, yes, might come across to some people in a spiritual way, and I've got no problem in people interpreting it in that fashion, if that's how they see it. For me, it's much more about that visceral experience of, of the world. And, and I'm more than happy if people think, you know, that, uh, that, that get something spiritual out of it, because in a way it's spiritual to me, but in a sort of very rational way, if that, if that makes any sense. I've realised as I said it, it may not. But uh, look, you start the book with the glorious Philip Larkin. If I were called in to construct a religion, I should make use of water. And swimming in lakes in the sea, having somebody wash you, all our experiences of water are so, well, sacred maybe. Yeah, you know, um, I, I wish um, that, you know, I mean, the book's long enough, so my editor would be angry with me for saying that I wanted to make it longer. But um, one of the things I really wish I'd written more about was people's individual experiences of water. And you're absolutely right. The people I spoke to, I spoke to so many people, and, and your listeners will know so many people who love the sound of water nearby, you know, whether it's a stream or a, or a sea, love being in water, can't spend a day without somehow being connected to it. And they can't necessarily explain why, but um, I think we all understand that, that, that there, there is a connection. I mean, we are water beings. You know, we're made, 70% of us is water. So there's, there's obviously a physical connection. And um, even if you can't put it into words, then you share that connection with somebody else to know that the, 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 the substance is something important. And yeah, uh, as we said earlier as well, water is is sacred to almost all religions, all religions, in fact. And so those stories we hear about them, the sort of the the importance of it in creation is is ever present. And I wouldn't want to diminish that at all. Um, and I think I, I wish, in fact, that I'd had more room to discuss some of those things because I think some of those visceral experiences, some of those spiritual experiences that people have they may be different to mine, but I feel like those are a common sort of thing in humanity. Um, and we all just describe them in different ways and use different vocabularies. But we all understand what we're all talking about at, at some level.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're examining humanity's greatest resource, water, and hearing about its magical and awe-inspiring qualities. To quote the great W.H. Auden, thousands have lived without love, not one without water. This evening I'm joined by Alec Ja, author of The Water Book, The Extraordinary Story of Our Most Ordinary Substance, published by Headline. Now, one of the places I've always wanted to visit is the Antarctic, somewhere I imagine that's both terrifying yet extraordinarily beautiful. A place that is lonely, isolated and unbelievably intense. Well, as part of his research for this book, Alec got the opportunity to take the trip of a lifetime a month sailing to, around and back from the most remote part of the most remote continent on the earth, Antarctica, to follow in the footsteps of the great polar explorer Douglas Mawson. Now, the Southern Ocean is one of the most roughest seas in the world, hugely dangerous and almost impossible to navigate. I asked Alec to describe the Antarctic and to give me a bit of a background on Douglas Mawson. He's probably the least famous of the of the four great Antarctic explorers. Uh, so you've heard of Scott, Amundsen um, and Shackleton and, and Mawson deserves to be amongst that pantheon. Um, and in 1912, he, barely at the age of 30, which uh, puts us all to shame, he organised an expedition to the Antarctic um, it, and it was the very first Australasian Antarctic expedition. He was really interested in science. Um, the others tended to be more interested in exploration and getting to the South Pole first, but Mawson was interested in science. And so he arranged this expedition. He got to Commonwealth Bay, which is a sort of part of East Antarctica that is extremely remote. I mean, uh, uh, it sounds silly saying that because Antarctica itself is remote, but this is a remote part of a remote continent. Even today, that part of Antarctica is relatively unvisited. There's, there's less activity there than there is in, on the Western Antarctic Peninsula and other parts of, uh, of the continent. So the expedition I joined was 100 years on from Douglas Mawson's, retracing the steps, using going along the same route to make the same sorts of scientific measurements he made. So Mawson measured sea temperature, he measured the air temperature, he measured, he, looked, he counted wildlife. And he wanted to record that part of the world. And it was such good data that 100 years later, it was still usable by, by scientists. And I was with climate scientists and zoologists who wanted to look at how this part of the world had changed in the century since. You know, and, and in that century, we've had such huge environmental change. Uh, we've discovered climate change. We wanted to, the world is changing hugely, and, and they wanted to know how this remote part of the world was being affected. So we, we um, yeah, we left New Zealand in early December. The idea was that we'd sail to the Antarctic, uh, East Antarctica, uh, Commonwealth Bay, and then come back in. And it was, um, I mean, in every sense of the word, uh, a new experience for me. I'm someone who lives in London. I don't really like to leave anywhere with good coffee and Wi-Fi, to be honest with you, never mind uh, going off to the middle of nowhere. But if someone gives you an opportunity to go to Antarctica, you, you take it with both hands. So the first thing that happened to me was I got very sick on the Southern Ocean. The Southern Ocean happens to be the roughest sea in the world. And that lasted for a few days. And then as we went along, we the seas got colder and we saw different types of birds penguins, whales, all sorts of things you don't see anywhere else in the world, just in those parts of uh, the ocean around the Antarctic. 
and eventually we got to a point where the ice started uh, appearing, so the temperature of the, uh, the, the water got cold enough for the ice flows, just these chunks of ice about a metre thick, which are the remnants of the previous year's winter. So Antarctica doubles in size every winter as the sea around it freezes. And then in the summer, which is in November, December, January in Antarctica, that sea metal sort of starts to break up and melt. And you see these ice flows, which are remnants of the previous winter. Yeah. You go through those, and eventually you see icebergs, which is, of course, these enormous behemoths of ice, 50 metres high, 200 metres below the water. And these are your first pieces of Antarctica. They've come to visit you from the continent. And they're the snapped-off bits of glacier that have spent tens of thousands of years on the Antarctic continent and have now reached the end of the uh, continent and are, are making their way out into the, into the Southern Ocean. So what was magnificent about seeing those, in a sense, you see these things in coffee table books, you see them on documentaries. But seeing one of an iceberg with your own eyes is, I mean, it's jaw-dropping, just the colours. Uh, it's not just white, it's aquamarine, purple. It's, there's, there's all sorts of blues in there. The way the light reflects off it is quite a remarkable thing. I mean, you could stare at the ice, stared at them for hours on end and tried and tried and tried to take pictures, but just could not do it justice. What I was seeing with my eyes was just very, very different from what I could even capture on camera. And, you know, as you go further in, you realize that this place is, you are, you are just insignificant in, in this sort of tiny speck of, of this ship uh, as you sort of go to this epic place because in cities in the rest of civilized wherever we built our civilizations we control the environments around us we were very good at that you know and some would argue maybe too good at that but in antarctica the environment controls you and what is the environment the environment is basically frozen water it's it's ice it's uh, water in the atmosphere it's the weather it controls you and it's you unpredictable, might, as you say, and it's treacherous. Totally unpredictable. And it's so, all about you know, precision, might, isn't it? You have to change your mindset when you're there. So, you know, if, if I wanted to go one mile across town, you know, I could either walk, I could get a taxi, I can get a train, whatever I want, but I can do it. And if there's delays, I can just, I can, there's ways for me to do it. In Antarctica, you might see a, a waypoint, one nautical mile ahead, and you might take your ship, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes to get there if it, at a gentle pace. Or... It might be the halfway there, the weather changes almost immediately and you have to stop. And it might take you a day or two days. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You can't be angry at the weather. You can't be angry at this vast continent. Your mind has to change. Uh, So one of these uh, captains of the ship told me, uh, one of the expedition organizers told me that in Antarctica, you don't really have an itinerary. You don't have, um, you know, uh, we must go here, we must go there. What you do is you have a book of intentions, a book of hopes mediated by the weather. And that's exactly... What, what you have the mindset you have to adopt. You can't get upset about things if don't, things don't happen. And we, we got caught out because a month, um, uh, we, we went to East Antarctica and we went to Douglas Mawson's huts, which is still standing um, on Commonwealth Bay, made all the measurements he'd made, paid our respect to the sort of those pioneers of Antarctic exploration. And we were on our way back. We were going to go back to New Zealand and the weather changed overnight. And all the ice that was around us that we were sort of making our way through, it suddenly pinned us in. We couldn't move. And this, for 10 days, we were stuck there. And the captain, the coast guard, had to call several icebreakers to us, come to our assistance, none of which could break us out because the ice was so compressed around us. And this, is, by the way, it happened very quickly. So in the first day, the ice surrounded us. We could see two kilometers away. We could see open ocean. That was all it was. And we would have been free. The next day after that, because the wind kept blowing, the, the open ocean was 20 kilometers away. That's how much ice had blown into that direction. And this happened in Antarctica 